Good morning, Grace Place family, and welcome to Baptism Sunday. We're glad you're able to be here. I was sharing with uh, our prayer uh, team this morning when we were uh, praying before the service and, and asking God's direction, kind of a little bit, always share with them a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. And this is the first time in eight years of being here that I have felt impressed to share something that we've talked about before and uh, kind of um, massaged this in, uh, really prompted of the Spirit that we need to really understand what sin is. There's no better place for us to begin than the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 4. So I want to invite you to uh, find your place there. Genesis chapter 4, we're going to uh, begin uh, there at uh, verse 1. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And we're going to read a story that's going to help us better understand what sin actually is to go away with a good definition of it. I think across uh, America in Christianity that we have really lost a sense of what sin is. And so we don't really, we're not really well described as Christians as those who are enemies of sin. And culture has had its part in uh, kind of having an impact on church thinking and theology regarding sin. And we have, of course, I think uh, what we all have to fight and everyone in this room uh, struggles with, and that's, that would be like our kind of secondary uh, communication voices that are speaking into our lives. When we hear words, um, they often harken back to upbringings, experiences, cultural ties, and uh, we can miss a, a powerful point. I had a chance to, to uh, make a little trip on Thursday, go back and do some business, but kind of lost the day for work, so picked it up again at the end of the week. Um, but part of my journey uh, went back to uh, an uh, institution uh, that I uh, have attended, and that's the King's University, and uh, had a chance to talk with some of the professors that were my professors. They just happened to be there that day, have open opportunity to talk with them. And uh, we had some discussions about what um, I'm going to talk to you about a little bit here in this opening, was that secondary kind of voice that speaks into to culture and has made it difficult for us to hearken and listen to God's voice. And we were comparing and contrasting uh, our experiences with uh, uh, Dr. Jack Hayford and how that God had given him a special anointing for kind of cutting through that and and heading to the very heart. I remember sitting in a in a service and he was talking about worship and and how that we uh, have to be cautious in uh, our approach in worshiping God in the sense that we are not we are not coming to worship God um, the way we want to worship God. We're coming to worship God in the way He invites us to come worship Him. And he has invited us to come in spirit and in truth. And so while we can sing songs and we can do a lot of different things that uh, open up opportunities for us to think about worship, if we are honestly to engage in worship with God, it is on his terms. It is doing things the way God has said. It is opening up honestly our hearts, being transparent and coming and, and worshiping the Lord. I was telling him that I still remembered one line that he had said that froze in my mind and uh, I, I had I was taking notes in that service and I stopped 
Uh, and I, I thought, I'm going to have to buy this tape because I, I didn't hear the next three paragraphs of whatever he said because this just kind of shook me. And he said, he talked about how that we are as a generation preening for contemporaneity. And uh, as I started thinking through what that meant and not my secondary kind of communication ideas, what that meant in terms of worship is that there is a certain mannerism of, of comfortability with how we worship that we want the table set that way. We're preening for that kind of uh, contemporaneity of, of what is comfortable for us, of, uh, of what is modern, of what is uh, whatever it is that we have the idea of, and uh, losing sight of what real, true, authentic worship is to God. And so I'm sitting there just being mindful of that and uh, soaking it in and missing the rest of the message, uh, in, at least in the entry remarks and things, just thinking about, wow, how have I done that? How have I just brought to God what I wanted to give to God, and I haven't brought him what he has asked for? And that's the essence of this story today, how we can bring to God what we want to bring to God, rather than what God has asked us to bring. So if you find your place there in uh, Genesis chapter 4, now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife. You might want to hold the ears of your children here. Eve, and she became pregnant. And when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. And they grew up. Abel became a shepherd and Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of the crops as a gift to the Lord Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn uh, lambs from the flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, and he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry. And he looked dejected. Why are you angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Uh, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and he killed him. And afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. I, am I my brother's guardian? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed and banished from the ground, but, uh, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer in the earth. And Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, no. For I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. And so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden.
It's funny how those last six words have such significant meaning even in modern times for us. Land of Nod, east of Eden. Of course, uh, the land of Nod is, uh, for us in modern times, is a reference to a work of American poetry, and it was uh, a journalist, Eugene Field. He uh, was famously known for the poet Winkin, Blinken, and Nod. And I'll just read uh, the closing line, which kind of explains what Winkin, Blinken, and Nod is, defines it. And the closing stanza of it reads, Winkin and Blinken are two little eyes, and Nod is a little head. And the wooden shoe that sailed the skies is the wee one's trundle bed. So shut your eyes while mother sings of wonderful sights that be, and you shall see the beautiful things as you rock in the misty sea. Where the old shoe rocked the fishermen three, winkin, blinkin, and nod. And of course, when we talk about East of Eden, we often think about the movie, the book that was written uh, by John Steinbeck, East of Eden. He's a Nobel Prize winner. Always been a fan of John Steinbeck and his writings. And many of you required reading as you were growing up. Things like East of Eden or Of Mice and Men, The Grapes of Wrath, The Winner of Our Discontent. But it is in East of Eden that Steinbeck attempts to pull back the black curtain and to peer into the darkness of humanity into sin. Cain is uh, the protagonist of the story. East of Eden was written about uh, the story that we just read right now. And Cain is, is the protagonist of the, the story that, that we read uh, by John Steinbeck, but he is not the villain. Cain is the main character of the story. And in fact, uh, Abel doesn't even have any speaking lines in the story that we just read. Cain is, is the story of us, of we, of you, and of me, of all of humanity. And Steinbeck's extensive novel attempts to barely attempts and, and really barely touches to plumb the depths with more than 500 pages he attempts to tackle just 16 verses and here we are all this time later still discussing it there's stories of Steinbeck after he had written this book gathering all of his friends and fellow writers and and for hours and hours days on end they would talk through uh, these 16 passages and try to see if they had in some way touched on what the reality of them really are. And this morning I want us to, to touch on um, what is the nature of, of the, or the essence of what is being spoken of in these 16 verses. Cain had a problem and his problem was sin. And I want us to try to define sin, but I think it's good for us when we're defining something sometimes to begin by what it is not. And there certainly is a lot of confusion in Christianity and mainstream Christianity about what sin truly is. Sin is not wrong choices. Sin is not moral infractions. Sin is not a bad decision of your own free will. I, as a pastor, I often get the question, People would come up to me and say something, begin a sentence with something like, 
Is it a sin to do? Is it a sin to not do? Is it a sin? And everything about that question is wrong and, and moves us in the wrong direction. If anything uh, can help us change our view of what sin is, I believe what we're talking about today can help us better understand and never again ask the question, is it a sin to or is it a sin to do something else? I want to share a passage of scripture with you out of the book of Romans, uh, where Paul illuminates further on, on the subject matter that we're talking about today. And it is Romans chapter 7. So if you want to find your way over there, Romans chapter 7. Paul really breaks it down for us and helps us get a better grip. And he begins there in verse 18 by saying, And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. This was written over 2,000 years ago, and there's not a person in this room that doesn't immediately resonate with those words of Paul. What I don't want to do, I do. What I should do and I, I want to do, I, I find myself not doing. There's not a person in the room that, that doesn't fully understand exactly what Paul is saying here. And it's not just you. I mean, all of us know that individually we're not perfect. Um, you know, we make mistakes and, and we're able to kind of, at a certain, uh, in, in, in a certain kind of way, look in the mirror and see ourselves and recognize the imperfections uh, not in the way that we look, but the imperfections internally and, and the things that we are struggling with and, and wishing that we were not more that way or we were more this way. And uh, there's, there's not a one of us that, that, that can't say that, that honestly can't make that kind of appraisal over our lives. But do you know that you're sitting beside someone, someone in front of you, someone behind you, someone beside you, who does things they don't want to do, all the time, and they can't stop. That's absolutely crazy, isn't it? And, it? and it needs explanation. You're sitting next to people who are like you, who do things they don't want to do. If I told you that you're going to leave this building and do some things that you don't want to do, you say, I am not. I will not do things that I do not want to do. And within hours, days, or weeks, you will find yourself doing something that you did not want to do. It's crazy. And the answer for us is found in Paul's explanation. It is sin living in me. Sin living in me. There's a power of chaos and destruction and anarchy that's waging war with inside of me. It's a destructive power that when unleashed 
upon the planet. Is it, it works through me and it does damage on me or in me and to others around me. And Paul goes on to say in this same passage, picking up verse 21, I have discovered the principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Conversation that God has with Cain in the opening passage is striking. And it's similar to what I just said a moment ago. If I told you you're going to go out those doors and, and do something that you don't want to do, a similar kind of conversation, a prophetic kind of word uh, coming from God to, to Cain in advance, saying to him, if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and master it. This, this metaphor conquers up an, an image of a lion that, that is, is waiting to pounce on us in an unsuspecting victim, and one that is, is frightening, uh, and, and it's, it's even more, made more frightening when we think about that here's someone who had advance warning from God that you are about to do something destructive, you are about to do something damaging, you're about to, if you allow this to take place, sin is, is, is going to take over, and you're going to do something you don't want to do. You're going to do something that's going to mark your life, that's going to damage you for life. And the fact that he had advance warning, but as we think through how many of us have had advance warning from people God has placed in our lives, and we wind up doing something we didn't want to do. And it scars us, and it wounds us, and we are carrying around those scars inside and outside from the things that we did and had forewarning that there would be consequences to those things. Sin took Cain out. Can sin take us out? And the simple answer is yes, and it does every day. We read about it. We hear about it. Where sin has had a tremendous impact on, on, on a life and has, has completely ended careers. We see football players and basketball players and golfers and, and uh, television personalities and Hollywood people that uh, in just a moment's time, uh, sin took them out. They did something that they really didn't want to do or failed to do something they should have done. We hear these stories of the famous and of common people. It leads us back to the opening remarks that we made when we tried to describe sin. Sin is not a moral infraction. We would never begin the year uh, this year by saying something like, all right, it's a new year, and one of my New Year's resolutions is that I definitely want to sin less this year, right? None of us would, would say that, would we? Because it's, it's not about a moral infraction. It's not about us exercising some willpower. You know, we move into the year trepid with an understanding at this point in our lives that we will likely do some things we don't want to do. We will likely damage some people. We will likely hurt some feelings. We will likely wound ourselves and other people around us. And so none of us begin with a prayer of saying, I just wish I could sin less. But do we have a, such a hatred for sin that we recognize that it is the enemy of our life? Yes, 
and we're about doing something to bring correction. We'd, none of us would say, this year I, I resolve to be less of a target for the enemy. I'm not going to let him know what my agenda is, and I'm going to get Secret Service people to kind of walk around with me and prevent me from being less of a target for the enemy. We don't say that, do we? But do we really understand that we are the target for destructive works of the enemy and sin? And if we knew that someone was pursuing us and was out to kill us and to hurt us, to take our family, how much differently we might live. We would certainly learn how to go to war with that. I'm not going to wait for this person to knock my door down and kill me and my family. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to build a, a fort and uh, fortify it. I'm going to be armed with things to go to war with. And if this person comes for a battle, they're going to get more than they ever dream. In fact, I might actually go on the offensive and, and, and go after the enemy rather than waiting for the enemy to come get me. And that's what the Bible's telling us. You better get ready to go to war. Because sin is out to kill you. Not to wound or to maim you. It's out to destroy your life and the lives of those around you. Paul warned that sin is out to kill you and the only solution for you is to kill it first. You must kill it first. And God told Cain the very same thing. He said, you must subdue it and become its master. You must allow God to rise up in your spirit so that you subdue the sin, the nature of sin that wants to overcome you and destroy your life and those around you. You must master it. And when the temptation comes, you speak out of the voice of God, the mastery of Him who sits on the throne. And you quote Scripture as Jesus did in the wilderness and said, It is written. I will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, I will worship no one except the living God. Either sin will master you, or you with God's help will master sin. We can no longer think of sin as a moral improvement project. To be a captive of sin is to be under the power and the control of the destroyer. And how we win against sin is obvious through these passages that we've studied. We begin by understanding how the enemy operates. When we were to talk to a great chess player, they, they want to know what the opening move of their opponent is. Because the opening moves, the first three or four moves, will set up their plan of destruction for the other player. And they want to know uh, how they're going to move those pieces in the opening. And they study those opponents to see. And the, and the strategy behind it is you want, to, you want to, to hinder that plan. You want to stop that plan uh, from advancing forward. Every world-class chess player is going to tell you that they will study the opening moves of their opponent so that they know. Now, the good news for you and I is the enemy's opening move is always 
the same. He never changes it. From the beginning all the way through Scripture, the same opening move by the enemy. Everything that opens you up to the sin nature taking your life over and destroying and hurting you begins with this. You know, God must not really love you. He, did, he doesn't let you do this or you don't have that. When the enemy shows us or convinces us that God is cheating us out of something, out of an experience, out of uh, a, a, a title, out of a relationship, out of whatever you want to put in the blank, that God has, has, has taken something from us. It was the opening line with, with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, God gave you all these trees, sure. Yeah, but there's that one over there that he did not give you. And he said, don't. You, he's cheating you. This is something good for you. And God's saying, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to hold it for me because God doesn't want you to be like him. So he's holding back on you. He's keeping something from, he's preventing you from having something. We see it throughout Scripture, whether it's Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. We see it in Sodom. We see it in, uh, in, in just, I feel compelled sometimes to tell the stories of the Bible because we, we don't always know the background. But this, the sin of Achan in Jericho, that was when God, uh, when the, the children of Israel marched in uh, to take the, the promised land that God had given them. And they, they came against the city Jericho. God had, had, had told them not to take anything when they subdued that city. He says, I'm going to give you that city. In fact, they didn't really even raise a sword against that city to win it over. The Bible says they just marched around it, played their trumpets, and the walls crushed. They came down to the ground. Interestingly enough, archaeology, they had to dig way down because Jericho kept getting built on top of the ruins. But when they got down to where, where this time period is, they literally say there was a force that pushed the walls down into the ground. Those walls came down. We used to sing the song, the walls came tumbling down, the walls of Jericho. God said, I'm going to give you the victory. But when you go in there, don't take anything. It is an offering to me. Take nothing. I'm going to give you the whole land here. All of the land belongs to you. But in this city is the tenth. What really belongs to me, it's the tithe. Don't touch it. Don't take it. Don't think about it. Don't breathe in its general direction, right? Those are the instructions of God <laughs> to, to the conquerors in Jericho. Achan decided he knew better than God. I'm certain the enemy came in and said, hey, there's some gold. There's some silver. There's an idol of gold. This is just going to go to waste. Somebody's going to come in here and take all this stuff away after you guys leave. Grab a couple of things. You know, you got a kid going to college. You're going to need it later. And Achan's sitting there going, oh, man, God's cheating me. I have got to have some of this. And he packs it up. And you remember the cost of it, what happened, if you don't know the whole story. And all, anyone who, never, who, who doesn't see grace and mercy in the Old Testament just hasn't read it. All right. So, so he does this. It's a sin, and he hides it. They go to battle, and they lose horribly against a smaller opponent. Uh, they're ambushed. They're sent running. And there's, uh, you find Joshua just crying out to the Lord, God, what happened? You know, and God says, there's sin in your camp. And so uh, Josh, Joshua says, where? Where's sin? And he says, well, have Israel march by you. Opportunity one for Achan. 
whole of Israel, a million people just marching by Joshua. That was a long day. He had a sandwich. <laughs> what a parade. And God says, select the tribe of Judah. And uh, so the tribe of Judah, I don't know, you know, it's got to be thousands. Another long day, another sandwich, marching by. Another opportunity for Achan to go, it's me, it's me, you know. But no, he's hiding. God says, take that grandfather's family down the line. Those people, have them march by you. Achan's sticking out a little bit more. Nothing. No, no cry for grace, mercy from God. Hiding his sin in the tent. He's discovered, uncovered, and dealt with because he refused. Sin overcame his life. Saul with David. Those of you who remember the story, the jealousy that began to take place with Saul, having learned that David had been anointed to be the future king. Saul went after him to destroy him. David's trying to take something that belongs to me. God's trying to cheat me out of something. David with Bathsheba. David's standing up. You know, it's, it's an interesting opening passage. It says, at the time that kings went off to war, David goes to the roof. <laughs> All the kings go off to war. David goes up to his roof and goes... I'm sure Satan's talking to him, going, oh, God's giving you a great kingdom. Look at all this wonderful stuff. Ooh, look at that beautiful woman. You, God didn't give you that. God did not give you that woman. Why did he keep that woman from you? Hmm? David's saying, I've been cheated. How many times has God warned us that sin is going to take us out? It's going to destroy our lives. Sin calls into question God's authority, God's wisdom, and Cain refused to give God what God required in terms of an offering. Cain de decided that he would hold back to see how good his crops were going to be before he gave to God. He, he gave God a portion. He gave God what he was willing to give to God. There was no moral crime in it, but there was sin because he brought to God what God not what, what, what God had asked for, but what he wanted to give to God. It was a sin of disobedience. He wanted to offer God less than what God had required. The challenge had been bring God what he has asked and what he demands. Don't bring him what you think he deserves or, or what you want to give to him. He chose to trust himself rather than to trust God. Abel had faith, and Cain did not. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by the example of faith. And so what is faith? Faith is not just believing in God. It is trusting God with everything that you are and everything that you have. When I grew up, we had, uh, you know, my probably late teen years and early 20s, the um, prosperity gospel movement was sweeping the country. And and uh, among uh, messages was that they would tell you, you know, that 
uh, having faith involved, you know, uh, you're trusting God and, and certainly with your finances and, you know, um, trusting that God's going to multiply those finances. And one of the, the statements that they used to often make is that the opposite of faith is fear. But I'm here to tell you that theologically in Scripture it doesn't say that. The opposite of faith is sin. It's sin. We have faith in God and we trust Him with everything. But we do not have faith in God. We have faith in our own abilities, our own uh, might, that of our culture, our world around us, uh, that of what the trappings of our jobs, the things that we get. We put our trust in something else. And to put our trust in something else is about sin. Sin's sole objective is to kill faith in God. Sin always leads to death. The passage we, we read a moment ago, this made Cain very angry when God received his brothers and he, and he looked dejected. And when we find ourselves in this story, as we start looking, we, we take a look at how God responds to Cain's fall into sin. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me uh, from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, No, for I will uh, give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. The Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. And so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so Cain is saying, and I want to show you the remedy that God has provided in Christ Jesus. So Cain says, first of all, he says, you have banished me from the land and from your presence. And in Matthew 27, verse 46, we read, Jesus called out in a loud voice on the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Cain said, You have made me homeless wanderer. I'm a homeless wanderer. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in. And birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Cain said, anyone who finds me will kill me. In Matthew 26, verse 2, you know that the day after tomorrow is Passover, and on that day the Son of Man will be handed over to his enemies to be killed on the cross. What did God do for Cain and for all of us? He let Jesus take our place. Jesus is standing between you and I in the full judgment of sin if we will make him the Lord and the leader over our lives. A decision that is, is simple when we think about the opposing side of things, when we allow sin to take over, it will destroy us and destroy everyone around us. The Bible says in John 10 and 10 that the enemy has come to steal to kill, and to destroy. It is his mission and plan to wipe us out. Throughout scripture, we see places where men and women tried to appease the enemy and keep him at bay. And there are, that's happening today. People who will say, I'll be less religious if you'll just stop the attack, if you'll lighten up a little bit, if, you can, if I can just get along with culture, I'll change the way I say words and do things. You know, I just, I just want to get along. I just want peace. And, and it's an attempt to appease those things. A beautiful story of that or a picture of that in early Bible is, 
is uh, where Jacob is, is uh, marching back to his homeland after he's been, God has blessed him and taken care of him and done some tremendous things. And he has great wealth now and he's going back to his homeland. And he learns that his brother is coming with an army to meet him. You know, his brother has a debt to settle with him because he stole his brother's birthright. And so his brother is, is uh, coming, you know. And so he decides, how do I stop this enemy? I'm going to appease him. So he starts sending gifts. He sends, you know, so many camels and so many um, goats and so many sheep. And he starts sending these offerings in advance so that it's kind of make his brother less angry. And, you know, each servant that brings these gifts says, this is from your brother Jacob as a gift to you. He wants you to have them and, and they're free and they have little bows on them. And, you know, you should be nice to him. <laughs> and it's us doing that with the enemy. You should be nice to me. You should just let me uh, get along. You know, I don't want to suffer all the consequences of, of, of behavior. Don't try to take me out. Wounding, oh, I can put up that. I've got a little wounds, got some scars. Don't take me out. But the enemy's plan is to kill you and destroy you. Destroy your name, to destroy everything that you love and is attached to you. That's the nature of evil. That's what evil is all about. It's about totally wiping you out. The fact that you were created by God, he has his fingerprints at any point on your life. That's what the enemy wants to wipe out. Turn to dust, completely destroy. He hates God. And he hates anything that God loves. And you are who God loves. And the enemy is out to take you out and to completely destroy you. I want to invite our worship team to come back. So what is sin? What is sin? It's not moral indiscretions. It's not a series of bad decisions that I've made. It's a nature inside of you that's out to destroy you and take over. And one of two options that you have with sin, you can give in and allow the enemy to do his work and destroy you and people around you. Or you can go to war in the name of Jesus. Make Jesus Lord and leader of your life and say, in the name of Jesus, I will master sin. The Jesus in me will master sin, and sin won't be telling me what to do. I won't leave this place, walk out in the parking lot, and in a few hours be doing something I don't want to do. I will, in Jesus' name, stand firm and strong in Him. I'm not saying that we're perfect enough, we can leave here today and we'll never fail or sin again. But I want you to have a good understanding of what that sinning really is all about. That it's the very nature that we're warring with inside of us. I'd like you to stand with me and I want to take a moment for us to pray. And make Jesus the Lord and the leader of our life. If you've never done this before and this is the first time that you are really asking Jesus to be the Lord and the leader of your life. I want to talk to you after service, myself or Michelle. See us and let us know because we want to give you some tools. We want to encourage you in your walk. It's not something easy. It's not just okay. Uh, I made this, this little decision, now I can go on with my life and live the way I want to live. You need to have an education about how to live right in Jesus, how to move forward and to please Him. And we want to help you do that. That's what coming to church is all about. Discipleship, growth, development in Him. Will you repeat these words with me? Lord Jesus, I come to you just as I am. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. 
I ask you to be the Lord and the leader of my life. I know you died for me. And you rose again. And I invite you to be Lord over my life. To give direction to my life. Every day and every moment. In Jesus' name. Amen.